Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. And so let's look at Mark chapter 6. Now here's, here's the scene before I read these verses, and we're going to work our way through it. And today there's not so much... Uh, a point that I'm going to give you before. I think at the end of this, there's going to be three things that I want to summarize this passage with. But I want us to see in this passage, and what's happening here is, remember last week, Jesus, we read that he sent out his 12 disciples on the first missionary journey, and he prepared them for the rejection that they would encounter and the, 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 uh, the difficulty that they would face, and said, when you face that difficulty, just shake off the dust off your sandals and move on. And so then this story of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, his death that has happened already is sort of sandwiched in between in this chapter, Mark chapter 6. And it really serves as a, a sort of display of the reality of the difficulty of Christian mission and witnessing that, that the gospel will be opposed by a world that hates Jesus. And, and it's, it's really personified in the life of John the Baptist. But what's happened here is as Jesus' gospel and his name is starting to spread throughout the region because his disciples being out on mission, Herod, the ruler of the region, hears about it and he's wondering, is this John the Baptist that they're speaking about? He's you know, not really keyed into what these Jewish people are doing, but he's hearing about this great Jesus and so he's wondering, oh, is this John the Baptist that I beheaded already? And so this passage of scripture is a recollection of that scene where Herod kills John the Baptist and it happens at this scene at a birthday party for, John, for Herod where Herod and his wife Herodias, so there's two main characters here, Herod the ruler and Herodias his wife and then John the Baptist and how they uh, eventually conspire to kill him. And in this passage that we're going to read, I want us to contrast, I want us to just in our minds have these two categories of how these three people respond and react to who Jesus is. In one sense, we see the folly of Herod and his wife Herodias and how sin deceives us and makes us do things that we never thought we'd do and how sin and evil hates the gospel. And then on the other end, we see John the Baptist and his faithfulness and his response to Jesus, even though it cost him his life. So let me pray, and then we'll start reading and, and, and stop along the way. Father, as we, as we open up your word now, we need your help. I need your help. As Robert prayed earlier this morning, the question is, who are we in light of how holy you are to approach you. And the good news of the gospel is, is that you make a way, you cleanse us, and you, in fact, recreate us, and you cause us to be born again through Jesus' work on the cross so that we come to you now, not because of our righteousness, not because we're good church folks. The reality is, is we are broken reeds. We are busted up people we are we are sinful and we we bring lives that are complex and full of of false idols that we worship instead of you but yet for those that have trusted in Jesus you have washed us 
and you have sanctified us, and now you see us through Jesus' work on the cross. So we come to you now, although in one sense perfected, still needing to be sanctified, and we, we come to you now in needy people. We pray that you would take this incredible scene and that you would speak to us. I pray that Christians would be convicted, encouraged, and would look at life through a a more sober-minded lens. I pray that people that are not yet followers of Jesus would, would hear the words of life and that you and your kindness would give them a new heart to believe and ears to hear. And I pray you do these things for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read Mark chapter 6, verse 14. It says that King Herod, now he's not really a king, but that's what he was referred to at the time, and now he is a, a sort of provincial, a provincial, it's like a governor of this Palestine-Israel area set in place by the Roman emperor during that time. And so Herod is not a Jew, he's a, he's a Gentile, and he is the, the sort of governor of this region of Palestine, and he was referred to in just sort of normal conversation as king. So King Herod heard of it, and what he's heard of is the missionary witness of who Jesus is by the disciples of Jesus that have just been sent out in the previous few verses that we read last week. So King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. So there's all these rumors going around about about who Jesus is. Herod's thinking, well, maybe it's this John the Baptist fellow that I beheaded, which we're going to read about in a second. And others are saying it's this Old Testament prophet Elijah who never died, but in the Old Testament, if you remember, in Kings was just taken up in this chariot of fire. And so there was this anticipation amongst the people that Elijah would return again. Verse 16, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now this is where it gets interesting. So we've got Herod, who's the ruler of this region, and you've you've got Herodias, who's his wife, and then you've got John the Baptist, who he has imprisoned. Now, this Herod character that we're reading about here is the son of Herod the Great that is at the beginning of the Gospels in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 who was trying to kill the infant baby Jesus. And so he has passed away, and now one of his seven sons, this Herod, creative in the naming, you know, I think he had a bunch of sons named Herod, and so this is also Herod. Antipas is actually his name, and now he is the ruler. And now... This ruler, Herod, has seven, I think he has six brothers from his father, Herod the Great, by different wives. One of his half-brothers, Philip, was married to this lady named Herodias. But Herod, our Herod in this text, fancied his brother's wife, Philip's wife. And so he took, he basically stole, wooed away his brother's wife, to be his own wife. So Herodias was previously his sister-in-law, and now she's his wife. But it gets even, it gets even crazier. Not only was Herodias his sister-in-law because she used to be one of his half-brother's wife, 
she was also the daughter of another one of his half-brothers. Okay? So she is the wife of one of his half-brothers and the daughter of another one of his half-brothers. So she is his sister-in-law slash niece slash wife. We're in Mori Povich territory here, friends. <laughs> that's, that's where we are. Okay? And so this is the situation. In verse 18, we continue reading, and it says, For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. I mean, we can't even count how many laws this breaks and how bad this is. Notice here that John has the courage to speak against sin and immorality in his day. Notice also that Herod was not a Jew, but yet John knew that God's law applies to everybody. Listen, do we, do we really believe that? I mean, Christianity is not just sort of the moral ethic of the Western world by which John Adams and the others founded the American democracy. It, it wasn't just a sort of undergirding set of principles for the Constitution of the United States. It is God's law. And, and John, rightly so, viewed God's law and his way of living as applying to all mankind. It is the responsibility of every Bible-believing church, every faithful Bible-believing pre Bible preacher, and every Christian to speak God's truth to a culture no matter how wicked it may be. And in our day, it is no different. I remember a few weeks ago, I can't remember what the context was, but I remember Wayne was up here praying and he mentioned something to the effect that uh, America is not a Christian nation. Now, it may have been founded by a bunch of people who maybe were Christians and they may used the Bible as a source document. In fact, maybe even the majority of the, of the truth for which they founded this nation. But, but do we realize that we're living in really a modern-day Babylon? And it is the responsibility of Christians to humbly, wisely, and, and with a love for the souls of people speak truth to the wickedness of our culture. Let me just give you two examples where I think we as a church need to not have our head in the sand. Two examples that have happened even in this, this past week, past few weeks. One is, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, is that Hobby Lobby, the, the retailer, you know, that sells crafts and stuff that women buy. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know. I mean, it's just not a store that I would find myself in very often. Well, Hobby Lobby is a, is a huge national retail chain and is owned by some very devout Christians, and very generous Christians, by the way. I'm not sure the name of the family. It escapes me now. But evidently with this new, uh, new health care bill that has been passed, part of that health care bill is mandating that employers offer and include and pay for 
uh, a morning after pill, uh, drugs that would cause, even at the very earliest ages, an abortion to happen. And very rightfully so, the owners of Hobby Lobby have said, listen, we'll pay for the health care of our employees, but we're not going to cover that pill because we don't want to be involved in that. And, and they uh, asked for relief at the, in, I think, late December, and they were shot down by the Supreme Court, and there's still a battle awaiting. But friends, that's a situation where we as a church need to pray for Hobby Lobby. And we need to speak against the evil of our government. And friends, don't get me wrong. This is not, I'm not trying to throw red meat to the Fox News crowd here. Right? Don't get me wrong. Our posture short, short, towards this should not just be, <laughs> President Obama, <laughs> and we just become grumpy moralists that nobody wants to listen to. What's at stake here is not a political position, but lives and the hearts and minds of people who don't know Jesus. Another, a second issue that just happened this week, I'm sure many of you are aware of it, Louis Giglio, a very well-known pastor and preacher, was invited to speak at the president's inauguration in January and was going to give, I think, the benediction and some people drummed up some sermon from Louis Giglio back in the 90s where he preached a very biblical perspective on homosexuality. And with great, and if you've ever heard Louis Giglio speak, you know that he's full of grace and charitability, but he, he believes the Bible and he believes in a biblical view of sexuality. And he, he talked about how um, sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is outside of God's way, and therefore the homosexual, like every other sinner, should repent of their sin and resist it and turn and trust in Jesus. And that's our only hope. And that became a firestorm, and now Louis Giglio has been uninvited from praying at the inauguration. So friends, even just this last week in God's providence, as I'm looking at John the Baptist speaking against the immorality of his day, these two issues are just plastered across the headlines. But, but notice, let's keep reading here. Let's notice how John does this. Verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against him because John is rightly preaching against his sin and he wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So notice here this sort of conflict that Herod has. John is not sitting up on the city square thumping his Bible, speaking in a way that, that really almost makes it impossible for Herod to hear the truth. If you go back to verse 18, it says, For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So we can almost picture John pleading with Herod for the sake of his soul, not just some political party platform. Do you see this? And would that the church, would that people in this room would have this sort of winsome, brokenhearted boldness where we, we care far less about red meat for conservatives and we care far more about the hearts and minds of people who grow up in a culture that is lost and we become a voice for truth in our time and day. And notice here also the two reactions of Herodias. She suppresses the truth. 
She hates it, much like much of our culture does. She has a grudge against John the Baptist's preaching of truth, and she wants him to be put to death. Notice also Herod, who has a bit of a different reaction, and I think this is more common. Herod was conflicted by the truth. He may have thought he was okay even because he enjoyed listening to John the Baptist's sermons. Look at verse, verse 20, the second part there. It says, when he heard him, meaning Herod hearing John preach, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Isn't that strange? I mean, John is telling him how out of bounds his relationship is, but yet there was something about John's delivery of truth that gladdened Herod's heart. Boy, I see people like this. I've been like this. In one sense, I love God's truth, but in another sense, it, it troubles me. Friends, the truth will either set you free or it will make you miserable. It will make you miserable. In fact, I think that's one of the things we should really work into our witness of the gospel is not this trust in Jesus and everything will be okay. I found, because my life was so full of sin when I trusted in Jesus, that the next few months were absolutely miserable because then Jesus started to put his finger on all of my sin. <laughs> I mean, you know? The truth will either set you free or it will make you miserable. And we see this in Herod. He was conflicted by the truth. Let's keep reading in verse 21. It gets really crazy now. As if his wife slash sister-in-law slash niece wasn't scandalous enough. It takes an even further left turn. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So the big shots are around the table at Herod's house. Verse 22, For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Now I tried to write out the relationship between this girl and Herod. She is the daughter of his wife, who's also his sister-in-law slash niece. So it's his great-niece-in-law slash stepdaughter. She's dancing in front of him. And the king said to her, imagine the scene now. Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. Friends, we don't need to get too graphic here, but suffice it to say, this was not a tap dance. Listen. Men, lust is a very powerful thing. Lust is a very powerful thing. And, and in just a moment, we're going to read how then this, in fact, let's read it in verse 23. He vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. He didn't have the authority to give up half his kingdom, but he's promising it. And when she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And he said, the head of John the Baptist. This was Herodias' plan all along to squash this voice of truth that she wanted to suppress. And so she sold out even her young daughter to do a little lap dance for Herod to cause him to not be able to see straight so that he would command what she wanted. Verse 25, and she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, 
he did not want to break his word to her. So I guess the part of John's preaching that made him glad wasn't quite strong enough to the peer pressure that he felt with these notable men sitting around his table. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Men, women, lust is a powerful thing, isn't it? And it will make you do things that you never thought you'd do. Now, I sort of doubt that any of you are in a situation where you're going to throw a birthday party and your stepdaughter sent in by your wife does a dance in front of you and that causes you to fall. I doubt any of you are going to be faced with that situation. But many men in this room and women in this room are faced with images of people who are not their spouses that cause them to lust, that cause them to do things that they never thought they would do. Men, are you giving yourself over to images of women that are not your wife? And is that wrecking your life? And, and it just seems like, you know, this is just a sort of taboo thing in our culture, you know? I mean, why is this so powerful? There's just something about sexual sin and lust that just we want to squash it because it's so powerful. We want to just keep the lid on it because we're so ashamed. I mean, I've never had anybody come into my office and say, Brad, I'm wrecked with shame. I'm wrecked with shame. When I was 15, I accidentally uttered a profanity. And I can't get over it. Nobody's ever done that. There's something about giving in to lust and sexual sin that we bury it down deep inside and there's just something that it, it, it just takes away from us. And so men, if you're, if you're caught in some relationship with a woman that is not your wife, if you're addicted to a computer screen with a false image of beauty, if you leave this place today still stuck in that rut, men, I warn you that that thing is more powerful than you are and it is not satisfied with minimizing you it will it will destroy you and it will do it in such a deceitful way that it will do it so slowly that you can't see the progression but before you know it you'll be in a situation where you are a thousand miles apart from your wife emotionally and your wife in your life will be wrecked and you will do things that you never thought you could do to satisfy that desire that never can quite be fulfilled because it's outside of God's way. Men, I, commi- I, just, I, I, I plead with you, if you're in that rut, come talk to a brother that you know to love Jesus, one of the pastors in this church. If you don't have a filter on your internet, if you don't have some accountability software on there, if you don't have some guards up in your life, you are playing with fire. I have it on my computer and I have guards in my life to guard my life from this thing that I know still exists in me and has to be mortified daily. And here's the other lie that I think the enemy uses. He uses this lie to think that, gosh, if, you know, Christianity is just this sort of straitjacket where, where, you know, if I live for God, 
that it'll be a sort of like pleasureless existence or a minimized pleasure. And so, you know, we're just, it seems like we're always battling with this false battle where I could really pursue this pleasure, but no, I can't do that because I gotta be a good little boy and tuck on my shirt and comb my hair and, you know, kind of be like the Ned Flanders of my world. You know, that character on whatever that stupid cartoon was. But see, that's not the biblical view of Christianity. You've got to fight lust. You have to fight all sin by saying no to a broken counterfeit pleasure by going after a greater pleasure, which is faithfulness in Christ. Young men, you need to know this. Young women, you need to know this. That saving yourself for that person that God has given you in marriage, not before and not outside of, is far more pleasurable than any broken counterfeit outside of it. it is far, you're going after a greater pleasure. But the enemy will always lie to you and say that, oh, this one little thing will be okay. And this doesn't just apply to, doesn't just apply to men. Maybe their lust is more visual, but women, I mean, come on, we're inundated with a re- culture that feasts on a woman's heart. Don't get me started on all these silly little reality TV series and Bachelor and Bachelorette silliness. And it presents a form of, it's like a feminized masculinity. He's always clean, and he doesn't have any hair on his body, and his teeth are shiny white, and it causes you to want that. You know what that is? That's emotional pornography. That's emotional pornography. And these silly little vampire movies. (laughs) I'm not, I mean, you're laughing, but it's, it's heartbreaking. It's presenting an unrealistic, feminized version of masculinity that's causing our young girls to want this thing. It's ridiculous. And that is, for, for a woman, that's just, that's just as dangerous as the teenage boy downloading images of naked women. In fact, it might be, that, that's obviously sinful. All, all this other little emotional pornographic stuff is less obviously sinful. Uh, sinful, and, and we buy our girls all the stuff to read it and to, to, to take it in. And do you realize, friends, listen, I didn't really want to go down this road because I don't want this just, just to be red meat for the moralist. Yeah! Yeah! You handled Obama and pornography, I'm happy. Now I can have a good lunch. Uh, friends, that's, that's not my... Did, that's not my heart here. Do you see this? I mean, I'm, I'm sorry I'm being silly and you're laughing, but do you see, like, do you see what's at stake here? In my heart, in your heart, and what's at stake here is the witness of the gospel in our city and, and the pleasure, the true eternal pleasure of our lives and our children and, and the witness of Jesus to an onlooking world. Friends, What's at stake here is not morality or political platforms, but the very gospel that God has called us to enjoy. So we see three responses. Well, let me just, before I move on, let me just say that if you find yourself, friends, if you find yourself caught in a snare or tempted deeply by any of these things, And I venture to say that if you are past puberty, you have either been tempted deeply by these things, are being tempted deeply by these things, or will be tempted deeply by these things. If you find yourself there, friends, don't walk, run to the cross. 
and practically run to a brother or sister in the Lord who you trust, maybe one of the pastors in this church, who will come around you and give you resources and give you the help of Christian community in the body of Christ to help you say no to the broken counterfeit pleasures of this world and yes to true joy in Christ. And, and friends, listen, 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 listen to me. I, I, I know this to be true, not just because the word of God says this, although that's all we need, because I have experienced brokenness and pain in this very area in my own life, and there is redemption. There is joy in Christ. There is grace at the foot of the cross. It is there for you, young man. It is there for you, young lady. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And don't leave this room, or don't let the sun go down on this day without reaching out to somebody, because there is help in the Lord. So let me conclude with just summarizing three responses we see to the truth. One, we see Herodias suppressed the truth. And by and large, that's the reaction of our culture. Our culture is not nominal or indifferent to Christianity. It hates it. It it puffs up athletes who will... uh, give lip service to God, and although they may be believing guys, I'm sure many of them are, but whenever an athlete starts to speak in Jesus' name, we see hate come. It gives lip service to the good works of Louis Giglio and his organization to try and end human slavery and trafficking, but the moment he tethers that to the gospel with biblical truth, they hate it. Maybe you were dragged here today by a friend and maybe you've suppressed the truth of who Jesus is in your life. Friends, the good news is is that when Jesus intends to save a person, he overpowers that suppression and he makes his joy and his beauty and his loveliness irresistible. And that may be where you find yourself right now. So you may be thinking, oh my gosh, I've suppressed the truth all my life. Can I ever be somebody that trusts in Jesus? Yes, yes. Jesus and his love is far more powerful than the world and its hate for his truth. Secondly, the second response we see to the truth with Herod, we see a man who is conflicted by the truth. We've talked about it. Disobedience to God and his way confuses us. It warps us. It deceives us. And it robs us of our ability to see things straight and trust in God and see Him as more pleasurable than a broken world. Truth will either set you free or it will make you miserable. And then finally, we see John, who believed the truth and gave his life for it, even though he doubted. We see John, who believed the truth and gave his life for it, even though he doubted, and this is like, this is, this is what makes this story so amazing. So what we have in John's account is, I mean, in Mark's account, is John ending the birthday party by getting his head chopped off. But before that, we read in Matthew. Let me read in Matthew chapter 11 about John the Baptist while he's in prison awaiting to get his head chopped off by Herod. Listen to Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. It says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John 
heard in prison. So he's already in prison. He's already, you know, preached against Herod in his situation. He's in prison. This is pre-birthday party. When, Jared, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who's in prison for preaching Christ, is wondering whether Christ is the Christ. I find that incredibly encouraging. Do, do you not? Johnny B. Doubted. John the Baptist, not Joe Schmo, not just some cat who was wandering around, he didn't know which way is up. John the Baptist, who the Holy Spirit moved in his mother's womb, caused him to leave. I mean, John the Baptist doubted. And what does Jesus say to his doubt? What does Jesus say to his doubt? Oh, John, come on, man. We've done this gig and you can't get this straight after 30 years of being my cousin and now you're preaching. No, he doesn't say, come on, man, to John. Listen to what Jesus said. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. And now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to quote a prophecy from Isaiah 61 that is a prophecy about Jesus in his ministry. And he says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. But one thing Jesus leaves off in repeating that prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 61 is one little line where it says that the captives will go free because what he's saying to John is all those things are happening but that one little part of that prophecy doesn't apply to you. You're not going to go free. In fact, John's going to get his head cut off. And in verse 6, Jesus says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And then later on in that chapter, Jesus says that there's no one greater that's come from a woman than John the Baptist. Even, friend, even in the midst of doubt, like it's okay to doubt. But even in the midst of his doubt, John believed the truth and gave his life for that truth of who Jesus is, it's a great reminder to us that we are not saved by the strength of our faith, but by the strength of the object of our faith. <laughs> That's really encouraging news. That's really encouraging news for the young man who is racked, who seems trapped by some sin that he can't get out of, and he's wondering whether Jesus will ever be able to pull through, and maybe he's heard some false teaching that he can only break free from that sin if he will garner up enough faith. Friends, that's not the truth of the gospel. Look to the one who, look to the one who defeated death and all of its consequences, and you are saved, you are rescued by the strength of Jesus, not by the strength of your faith. John believed the truth and gave his life for it, even though he doubted. Friends, these are three responses we see to the truth. Where do you find yourself? You find yourself conflicted by the truth? Run to Jesus. Do you find your life having been a life that has suppressed the truth? Run to Jesus. Do you find your life Maybe like John, you seem to fluctuate in and out of strength, and you're, you're really ashamed of some of your hypocrisy and doubt. Run 
to Jesus and look to him even now. He is mighty to save. He's mighty to save. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, as we come now to, in a few moments, see our brother Blair be baptized and proclaim this very truth that John preached and that the disciples preached. I pray, Lord, for people in this room who are conflicted by the gospel. In one sense, they seem to be gladdened by it like John, but in another sense, they... They're so tugged at and trapped by broken counterfeit pleasures that they've bought in and settled into this lie that they could never truly serve Jesus. Or maybe even worse, they've deceived themselves into thinking that they're okay with Jesus because they come to church and you know, download the latest sermon from the latest preacher know the songs, but yet their life is full of lies. Father, I have been that person, and I know because your word says it, and because I've tasted it in my own life, I know that you can save from that deception. Father, would you do that for that person in this room who might be conflicted by the truth and deceiving themselves? And Lord, for the Christian who's here, who's believing the truth and trying to stand on it, God, would you cause them to not look to themselves, but to look to Jesus who went to the cross with his perfect life, with his completely obedient life. Jesus, fully God and fully man, who laid down his perfect life as a sacrifice to absorb the punishment that should have been ours, that should have been mine, that should have been all those that turn and trust in Jesus. And he, on the cross, satisfied your law and your holiness and your righteousness. And he died, removing sin, extinguishing its penalty, and then rose again in victory over death and sin and all of its consequences. And now commands all people everywhere to trust in Him as their only hope before a holy, righteous Creator. Lord, for people that have done that, would you give them confidence, not in their faith, but in the object of their faith, Jesus. Would that strengthen our hands and our knees for the life that you've called us to in this wicked world, for the glory of Jesus. For the joy of your people, I pray that you do these things. In Jesus' name, amen.